Tom Maluli is an investment advisor representative with Maluli Asset Management. All opinions expressed by Tom and his podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Maluli Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Maluli Asset Management may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. This is episode number 328, 328. Thank you for joining us. I'm Tom Maluli, and joining me today is Tim Maluli. Hi, everybody. And Brendan Maluli. Ready to rock. Let's do it. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal. Um, we were just discussing it before we turned the microphones on. It was about how the coronavirus tanked the economy. That's the headline. Uh, but then credit scores went up. And, you know, as you're reading the article, it does make sense why. Some people, their, their credit score, the average FICO credit score went up a little bit over the summer months. Um, if you're not going out as much, you're not putting as much on your credit cards, you're kind of tightening your pockets in a sense, not spending as much money, you're not racking up credit card debt, or you, maybe you're using some money to pay down debt. It, it got me thinking about if the credit scores going up are a good thing, if it's potentially just like propped up by temporary stimulus yeah. you know what i mean like that's what the banks seem to be worried about right it sounds like they're searching for additional measures that they can add to these these credit scores are just like a composite basically that's supposed to spit out some number that tells a, a bank or a lender about your credit worthiness and right. it sounds like a lot of them are worried that they need to do some updating to how these numbers are put together because they're not getting the information that they need or that they they don't necessarily trust these numbers because they've been improving while we've been getting uh, poor economic data and it's tough for them to sift through who is worth lending to and who isn't because what's they're real and what's not there hasn't yeah. been any any uh you can't tell the difference between somebody who, who took a pass on uh, paying their mortgage for the last several months just because they could and somebody who like actually needed to just just as a one-off right. example yeah that that's what came to mind for me right away was like well does this kind of just put into jeopardy like the legitimacy of credit credit scores in general i wonder if they if the authors will go back and rewrite or re-examine this story as we get closer to christmas and we find that you know maybe the economy doesn't snap back like some people are predicting and this additional unemployment insurance the the initial part of it ran out at the end of July, I know that Congress is still talking about a second stimulus, uh, probably a lot smaller than what they did in the first wave. But I just wonder if the credit score as a number, like a black box tool that banks and lenders used to use, I just wonder if it's really effective in this kind of situation. Doesn't yeah. seem to be. And the number that they pulled citing that the average score had increased was from, I think, either July or August. So it makes sense from a standpoint of like when the stimulus actually happened to what people were doing at the time. So I agree. It'll, it'll be interesting to see if they kind of follow follow up how that how the scores progress or regress over the next couple of months now that things have kind of run out. They also noted that it's it's been a lagging indicator in the past, mm -hmm. meaning that, like, for example, in 2009, October was when uh, credit scores bottomed, which was well after the end of the market downturn and, and the recession even. So, you know, recession 
is different by everybody's measures, but but yeah. by the textbook ones at least, uh, that's that's what they were looking at. I, I did think that one thing from the article is good, and it was a survey, so take it with a grain of salt. But people uh, seemingly have been using stimulus or relief or whatever they've been receiving uh, to pay down debt. It said 35% of people surveyed said that they use some kind of stimulus to pay down uh, debt, which improves credit scores. It, mm-hmm. it can improve cash flow too. So, I mean, that's Definitely gives me hope one. that people took a look at this money that was coming in and they were like, all right, if I've been put in a bad position because of everything going on, what is the best possible ROI I can do? We heard all these stories about people throwing their $1,200 stimulus checks into their Robinhood accounts. If if somebody had if somebody had consumer debt, for instance, and they got a $1,200 $1, check, and with the unemployment you know, insurance, they could make things work from a cash flow perspective, one of the best things they could do is get rid of that debt that was probably compounding at 15 20%, just eating away at their net worth. So, I mean, if that's what people were doing, then that's awesome. That's that's great. I'm yeah. glad to hear people were being responsible with this money. Yeah. One of the, the single best quotes I found in that article right near the end was a woman who was quoted as saying, COVID forced me to really look at my finances. Hallelujah. I mean, obvious. I mean, that's fantastic because unfortunately it, it takes a global pandemic for some people to get serious about their money, but... Hey, whatever it takes. Right. As long as they get the wake-up call, that's that's all that matters. But they were they were saying how you mentioned how lenders are looking for like different ways to assess risk for these people if they're questioning the credit scores. And they said using personal cash flow data for for individuals to help determine risk. I when I read that, I was like, maybe they should have should or should have been doing that all along. It it seems a little more tedious, obviously, uh, than just looking at a three-digit credit score number and determining it based off of that. But if they want to be more spot on with the risk that they're assessing for people, I feel like just taking a look at their cash flow would probably be the best indicator for how ready they are to pay down debt or pay back loans and stuff like that. I think the the big problem with that is, uh, yeah, if you're applying directly to a bank for a mortgage or some kind of direct loan with a bank, uh, then they can take their time and really scrub the numbers. But you know, when you're sitting at the sitting at, at the car dealership, and you're trying to finance that that car that you bought, they want to run that credit score and get you in the car that afternoon. What's it going to take to get you in that car today? That's ne- not necessarily good for the consumer. It's good for them. So <laughs> yeah. it's convenient for them to oh, not exactly. not care oh, about the yeah. details because right. their business is predicated upon. You know, selling as many cars. Yeah, as they you can. want to buy that car then, so they want to get your impulse before you think better of it and, and buy something different. One thing I just thought of as we're talking about this is, how would you like to be the guy at the bank who gets that phone call? You know, ten o'clock Monday morning. Hey, you bought thirty-seven cars this weekend. Yeah. Because right. you're honestly, you own the car. You you've taken on all this debt. Yeah. Congratulations. Yeah, I was gonna say, I think there's it's kind of like a, a rough spot that everybody's in because. You know, like I can understand from the bank's perspective or lenders, whoever's doing, you know, the lending, they want to be more certain than maybe like a FICO credit score is is, is giving them uh, on the surface. And so they're looking for, for more details. Um, that's their business. They need to make good loans to be viable. Um, but like if, if they're not going to give folks the financing that they need or they're going to pull back and make things more difficult in terms of people looking for money, then that's going to only put more stress on the government to then either 
backstop the lenders and say, hey, it's okay to make crappy loans, don't worry about it, or the government's just going to have to do their own thing, meaning more stimulus, and they kind of go yeah. hand in hand, and like so, there's there's a misalignment there because it seems like nobody wants to nobody wants to give out the money because the government's dragging their feet, and then in the meantime, you have all these lenders saying that they don't want to do it either. Credit, and that's bad for the entire economy. It is credit dries up at the worst possible time. We just recorded a video talking about October nineteenth, nineteen eighty seven, and overnight. That was Monday night. The market went down 500 points, 22% in one day. Overnight, banks were telling the market makers, these were the guys who used to run around on the floor of the exchange, we're cutting off your credit. What? These guys are the buyers of last resort. How many people wanted to sell the next day? All of them. And the banks have a, a history of doing this. Credit dries up at the worst possible time. Sorry to be a showstopper with that. No, no there's there's no no easy answer to this because they're they're not charities. They're here to make money, uh, so they don't just give out loans for free. But uh, the entire economic system relies upon them giving out loans. So like they kind of need to make the loans too. Yeah, yeah. So it'll be interesting to keep an eye on credit scores and what goes on with them over the next couple couple months to a year, perhaps. There's another article in the Wall Street Journal uh, written by Jason Zweig last week. Uh, the title of the article was, Look Who's Really Chasing Hot Stocks Like Zoom. And, you know, we've been hearing, uh, if you watch CNBC or read any financial media articles about how Robinhood traders and day traders are moving the markets with their, you know, stock speculation moves. And Jason kind of pulled the lampshade off that argument in his post, writing about how, if you look at it, institutions and professional investors are a big portion of the people out there that are speculating in these hot stocks like Zoom. And he talked about a couple others in the article as well. Yeah, what I took away from this was just that the pros can't help themselves either and they're, they're window dressing and their funds to show you that they own the hottest stock from last quarter too because they don't want to get fired from their job and, and they're even in some cases it sounds like breaking or at least bending their mandates in terms of what they're supposed to be doing to uh, get into these names and I wouldn't I wouldn't be very happy if I looked under the hood of a, an active mutual fund that I thought was for mid-cap value stocks to find out that it owns shares of Zoom, even if it's in a, a small amount of the fund. I, th I think that's uh, part of the reason why ETF and index products have, uh, you know, come to be more you know, prominent over the last few years, because at least you know what you're getting and you don't have some guy or girl who's worried about losing their job each quarter uh, window dressing just for the sake of it. Yeah. So let's just talk for a moment about what window dressing actually is. When a mutual fund manager, an active manager, not someone who's following an index, but when an active fund manager, they have to put out two reports at a minimum, a six-month semi-annual report and an annual report, but once a quarter, they'll usually release what their holdings are. And they'll tell you, we own these stocks at the end of the quarter at the end of the quarter. They yeah, you never don't, you tell don't know when you, you bought when yeah, they bought Yeah, they could have bought it yesterday. Yeah. Uh, so as long as you appear to hold all the right names, that's win that could be window dressing because you may not have hold held those positions for the entire quarter. You may have just bought them yesterday. Right. 
Yeah, and like Brendan was saying, there was a specific example in there of a value, active value fund that owns Zoom that's currently trading, I think the number was 690 times earnings. Yeah, and but only, two, to, only 200 times next year's earnings. Right, but it's supposed <laughs> to be within, it's under the, under the hood of a value fund, kind of the opposite of what value investing is there. Uh, so it's not really what investors, I'm guessing, would expect their value fund to own, but they're essentially just chasing performance. And like you said, they're trying to keep their jobs. It, it's hard to look at the David versus Goliath picture and honestly believe that these people are saying with a straight face that it's Robin Hood traders and individuals who are driving these prices. We, we paint that picture as if it's people on their phone who are these emotional basket cases who are trading stocks and doing silly things. But like, we're all humans. And so if some of them are behaving that way, because some of them are, I agree, some, that means that some active professional investors who run mutual funds, separately managed accounts or hedge funds are doing silly things too, because they're human beings. Sure. So temptation spans the spectrum, no matter how, uh, you know, intelligent or, or in tune with, you know, the professional investing sphere you are, you, you can be a pro or a total amateur and you still want to own what's hot. Sure. Yeah. But may not be smart. But maybe it's just the naive, simplified way that I look at things. I don't care how many individual people go in and buy seven shares of Zoom or even 50 shares of Zoom. That's never going to add up to a guy who's managing a billion dollar fund or a billion dollars in assets who says, I'm gonna put, I don't know, $100,000 or a half a million dollars, a very, very small position for them into a stock. One click, one trade. It's just never gonna add up where these individuals are gonna swamp an an institutional investor. No way, no way. Yeah. It'll, it'll never add up. Some people in the, in the industry and in the media have been like, kind of shaking, wagging their finger at the individual investors speculating on these stocks when in reality they're doing the same thing. So it, it just, to me, it, it speaks to, you know, watch what they do and not necessarily what they say because they'll scold you for doing it, but behind closed doors they're doing it the same as what they're you telling you right. not to do. Yeah. So. Yeah, and I don't, my take and I don't think anybody should be doing it. They're chasing performance and doing silly stuff, regardless of who we're talking about. I think it's just easier to say that it's the amateurs doing it than the professionals, because we assume that the professionals are smarter than that. But I don't think it's an intelligence question; it's an emotion sure. question. And and once you start crossing those wires, uh, I think everybody's on on equal footing. It doesn't matter how much experience in, in the market you have. The problem I have is is kind of what we mentioned early on when talking about this article is that if you have a, a professional who's got a mandate to buy value stocks or to buy small cap stocks and he's jerking around with something that doesn't fit what he's supposed to be buying, that guy should be fired. He's not doing his job. I guess it depends on what doing your job is because if it works, no one's going to care. But if it doesn't work, that's when that's, that's when right. people would get upset, I think. There was another article in, in the Wall Street Journal that kind of piggybacked off of that. or, or They were similar in a sense. They were talking about these individual investors and the headline read, Individual Investing Boom Fuels Trading in Low-Priced Stocks. So this was about how the people that are actually trading on Robinhood, um, a lot of them are 
buying and selling stocks that are five dollars or less. I think this stat was more than 25 percent of the shares traded in the U.S. over the summer uh, on Robinhood were stocks less than five dollars. So uh, again, there there is a lot of activity going on and, and accounts being made and trades happening, but I don't think it's necessarily moving the market as much as people on TV or online on Twitter might be saying that they are. A couple of, couple of things come to mind when I see that $5 stock price being discussed. Uh, $5 is usually the threshold for whether a stock can be marginable or not. And so you're not going to get uh, you know, a lot of people who want to do things on margin hanging around the 4 5 $6 price tags because they're going to run into a situation where tomorrow if the stock moves against them, they're going to have a margin call right away. That, that's something. The other thing is that they're usually very thinly traded, so it's very hard for anyone with size, like that billion-dollar asset manager I just mentioned, to go in and take a meaningful position in something without basically bidding against himself. The other thing that I'll mention is that a lot of times when you're dealing with low price stocks, there's a lot of shadiness. Yeah, going pump, on. pump and dump. Yeah, yes. that's that's what it is. Yes, it is. So there's a lot of fraud. There's a lot of hijinks going on. We saw a couple of, of examples of it right in that article. Yeah. Uh, they talked about a, a few stocks that really had no news, but were going up double and triple their price in a matter of days and then getting sliced in half. Uh, a week later. Yeah, play, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. I thought the interesting thing, and maybe this is just me inferring something that's not there, but if you looked at that chart from the article that, that showed the percentage of uh, trading for $5 or uh, cheaper stocks, it seemed like from 2013 to 2019-ish, it was like 10 or 15% of trading pretty consistently. Yeah. And then around the, t- the end of the second half of 2019 through today, it was between 15 and 25%, depending on when you were looking. And that kind of coincides with this move to like free trades for all of the platforms, Yeah. which if you're going to buy even a hundred shares of a $5 stock, like a, a commission of five or six bucks is like not insignificant in terms of like, you know, <laughs> yeah. The, the what did, yeah. So like it enables people to do stuff like this. And I don't think that that was an unintended consequence of all these brokerage firms doing what they did. Yeah. There was a certain amount of friction with commissions involved. And so, you know, back in the day when I was a broker many moons ago, two of the speed bumps were, well, how much is this going to cost me to sell this stock? Well, the commission is going to be $275. I better think about it. And, you know, what's the tax implication on something like this? So taxes and commissions were things that stopped people from rapid or frequent trading. Uh, those frictions are, well, the tax thing's still around, but the, the friction of commission, that's eliminated now. And so we're seeing a huge spike. Yeah. And just, it, just a note on the tax thing. I think there are going to be a lot of surprise 1099s for uh, new, oh, newly established yeah. day traders in 2020. So make sure to subtract whatever that is from, from your net returns, because that's how everybody else plays ball, in case, <laughs> in case you were wondering. Yeah. yeah. So when you're... Bragging after about tax, after fee performance is what you eat. Uh, so I, th- I think there's also an element of like trading in these stocks that are five dollars uh, or under of just like lottery gambling mentality because I think for some people it just sounds easier for a stock to go from five to six yeah. uh, than it does to go from a hundred to one twenty when in fact it's 
the same exact move right. and it's and it's just as difficult or hard depending sure uh, it, it has no bearing whatsoever that it only has to go from five to six and it's only a dollar because yeah. it still has to make up as much ground as the stock that needs to go 20 bucks higher to, to make 20 percent starting from 100 so same there's percentage return there's no difference but it it just seems intuitive that that it should be easier to get from five to six so it seems easier to turn mentally to turn these big profits in these cheap stocks and i don't you know that's I also think it's, it's not true. <laughs> yeah, I also think it's easier for people to like pull the trigger on buying some of these names because they're only four or five bucks. It takes more out of you to buy like a more expensive, more expensive stock. It's like, well, this, this name's only five bucks. Like, I could I could swing that. Even if you're putting the same amount of money that you'd put into a one hundred dollar stock, if you if it's a five dollar stock, it's like, eh, it's a five dollar stock. Like, we'll see what happens. But you might have stronger feelings about it if it's, it's a, a more expensive. Same stock. stuff we talk about with stock splits. Yeah, absolutely no bearing whatsoever on future returns. I hope people learn that lesson over the summer too, because yeah. they, they should have. <laughs> the last article that we wanted to talk about this week was from CNBC, and it, it talked about some financial advice for new parents, and uh, they they listed some numbers in terms of how much to expect uh, in today's day raising a child might cost and and with college and other things involved having a kid today according to the article is a quarter of a million dollar for they said road. in the article they said for middle class for a middle class couple they can expect to spend over $230,000 raising a child and that does not include college which they then went on to say by 2036 a four-year private college they estimate would cost about $303,000. So if you put the two of those together, raising your child would cost just slightly over half a million dollars. It's obviously not due in like one lump sum right, payment yeah. when you bring them home from the hospital. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, over, over the span of 20, 21 years till they get out of college. And then if you have loans, maybe like 25 years or so to pay it off. But yeah. So they Still said on. that, uh, you know, up through age 17, it was 233000 which works out to be a, an average of about twelve or thirteen grand a year, or just over $1,000 a month. When our family was growing, you start thinking about things like diapers and food and clothing, and, you know, you're going to have to get a crib or, you know, all these kinds of things. You don't really, you don't really add all this up. And it doesn't all happen in straight lines either. We don't actually do this for ourselves either, though, because if you wanted to do just loose math, if you know what you spend on a monthly basis and, and say you're not, maybe maybe you're married without child right now. So divide those numbers by two on what you're spending per month, and that's what you cost. Yeah. And you can tally that that's up over 20 years. You. Yeah. Right. Yeah. you can I can tabulate my own cost for the next 20 years. I mean, it's it's good to have a grip on these numbers, but it's like, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't, I don't think you should let that, psych you out of of doing things because you're obviously finding a way to make it work now uh but but you got to be aware of the cost like they were talking about how much free. it costs like yeah. childcare is insane these days it and is. and a lot of parents are forced into a decision of potentially a, a two income household becoming one because it doesn't make sense anymore or or it's going to continue to be two two uh incomes but you're going to have a thousand or fifteen hundred bucks a month lopped off because you need someone to take care of of your kid while you guys are working yeah Big decisions, and not to be taken lightly. There's there's some interesting math in there too, and it was just you know basic compounding formula. But like, you know they they were talking about 
you know, earning something I think like a six or seven percent uh, rate of return on on money that you would invest, and and saving the same amount. So like five hundred dollars a month was the example. And if you started right away when your child was born at eighteen, you'd have almost two hundred thousand dollars set aside for them. Uh, but if you wait until they were ten, you'd you'd only have sixty right. by the time they t- time they turned eighteen. And so, you know, obviously in a perfect world, you can just uh, transition directly into whatever increased expenses you have on the forefront and then also set aside money every single month. But just, and I know that that's not reality for a lot of folks, but uh, to remember that the earlier you start, the you're going to have a better advantage. With everything. Bigger, bigger advantage. Yeah. I mean, looking at life insurance too. I mean, you know, when, yeah. when you're starting a new family, like you and your spouse, regardless of, of if you're both working or not, are probably going to need to consider if you have enough coverage because you have a dependent, and if you want to have money to not only support the surviving spouse, but also to maybe pay for school or to make sure that your kid's taken care of through uh, when they become an adult. I mean, these are all things you got to factor in when when you're thinking about starting a family. The catch there that they pointed out for life insurance, if you want to do that, you should, you know, make sure you have the right amount in place before uh, you get pregnant or before you once you decide that you want to try and start having a family um, because that changes things when you go to get another policy or, or get more coverage if, if you're pregnant or already have a child. Right. Yeah. And the longer you wait, the more expensive it's going to get anyway, right. you know, the older you get. And so all, all good things to talk about with your planner. That's going to wrap up episode 328, 328. Thanks again for tuning in, and we will catch up with you on the next episode.